Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to Far Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 138. I'm your host, Nicholas Eaton clark and I'd like to remind you that our window for story submissions will open in just a few days. As of now, we are a paying market for reprints. We are able to do so thanks to the generous donations from listeners such as yourself, and we are closing in on our goal of paying narrators as well. With that in mind, please consider making a donation on the District of Wonders Patreon page. Even a little goes a long way towards helping us make the district bigger and better. We're closing out this tumultuous year with two great stories, the first being a tale of the Rose Knights called Terracotta, written by Jay Lake and Ruth Nestfold, and originally published at DailySciencefiction.com. Jay lived in Portland, Oregon, until his death in 2014, shortly before his 50th birthday. His books include Kalimpura from Tor and Love in the Time of Metal and Flesh from Prime. Jay was a winner of the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer and a multiple nominee for the Hugo and World Fantasy Awards. In 2015, he posthumously received the Locus Award for his collection Last Plane to Heaven. Ruth has published widely in science fiction and fantasy, in such markets as Asimov's and fantasy and science fiction. Her work has been nominated for the Nebula, Tiptree and Sturgeon Awards, and in 2007, the Italian translation of her novella Looking Through Lace won the Premio Italia Award for Best International Work. Their collection of short stories, Almost All the Way Home from the Stars, is available at Amazon and via iTunes. This tale is read by Jen R. Albert. Jen is an entomologist, writer, editor, narrator, wife, dog mom, game player, reader of all the things, and haver of too many hobbies from Toronto. She is a regular narrator at the Escape Artists Podcasts and co-editor of Podcastle. And now, Terracotta by Jay Lake and Ruth Nestfold. Once upon a time there was a rust-brown rabbit who lived in an ancient castle. The roofs were gone, the towers tottered, the courtyard was rife with brambles and roses gone feral as an invading army. The sun shone through the eastern gate of a morning, and he would go out and nibble along the corners of the parade ground, 
and wonder at the rotted banners hanging from the walls and why the world was shaped so. One day, a cream-white knight led a horse through the eastern gate. More an arch, really. Hungry as an empty heart, and open as loving eyes. It had been many years since anyone had dared to pass, and the rabbit watched, wondering what new shape the world would take now. The horse was beautiful, silvery gray with leather accoutrements, and a riding saddle chased with silver to match its coat. The knight was a woman, aging but still strong of face, her shoulders high and rolling as she walked, one hand on her sword, the other holding the reins. She drew an axe and hacked a path through the brambles under which the rabbit was wont to run and hide when the hawk circled on the winds overhead. The rabbit followed her, for he was curious. He could not remember a time when there had been a knight in this castle, only himself in his long burrow, and the squirrels and rats who were his distant cousins. The knight looped the reins around some rusty ironwork, patted the horse's neck, and went into the great hall. She touched the dusty trencher tables, stared into the empty fireplaces, knelt before a shattered throne, while he watched from beneath a broken bushel basket. She walked the galleries unseeing, past moldy portraits and tarnished armor, and pale vines twisting in through the vacant windows, the rabbit hiding behind rotting curtains and under-decaying furniture. At the end of a long hall was a tower. This gave the rabbit pause. He had some dim, lapin understanding of stairs, but they continued past where he could see. He gazed after her disappearing feet and hopped upward after her, making more noise than he would have liked. She circled, avoiding dry rot and shattered wood. Still he followed, ever closer, until they came to the highest part of the tower. There stood an old canopied bed, aging silk glowing yellow ivory in the sun through the windows. No one slept there, there were no miracles here, just a lady knight and a tremulous rabbit. The knight turned. There you are, she said, picking him up and holding him close to her creamy surcoat. She stroked him. You don't remember, do you, Terracotta? I'm Alina. With those words, he remembered that he had forgotten, forgotten something important, but even in his memory he did not know what it was. She kissed his whiskered face. The war is over now. I had hoped. But she didn't finish what she had been about to say. Instead, she carried him down to the courtyard and set him free to race back to his burrow. Goodbye, my love, she called. With that, she led her horse back out the eastern gate and rode into the shadows of evening, while the rabbit keened deep beneath the earth and remembered when the banners had been bright and the world had been whole. And so, on to our feature story for this week. It is a war story with a twist called Heavy Sulphur, written by Ari Marmel. Ari would love to tell you all about the various esoteric jobs he held and the wacky adventures he had on the way to becoming an author, since that's what other authors seem to do in these sections. Unfortunately, he doesn't actually have any, because real life is boring, hence the focus on fiction. His published work includes fully original novels such as Hot Lead, Cold Iron and Thief's Covenant, licensed or tie-in novels for multiple properties and role-playing game material for games such as Dungeons & Dragons and Vampire the Masquerade. 
He has worked with publishers such as Del Rey, Pier Books, Titan Books, and Wizards of the Coast. Ari currently lives in an apartment that's almost as cluttered as his subconscious, which he shares the apartment, not the subconscious, though sometimes it seems like it, with George, his wife, and two cats who really, really think it's dinner time. You can find Ari online via the links in our show notes. Ari's tale is read by Jack Calverley. Jack lives in central London, where he watches a very small patch of land struggle into gardenhood. In even quieter moments, he has been known to narrate science fiction stories for Starship Sofa and horror stories for Tales to Terrify, and also hosted the now defunct Crime City Central podcast for its entire two year run. He is a member of the Tea Party Genre Writers Group, another group called Winos, and of Critters.org. And, having attended two online classes from the Odyssey Writing Workshops, is a member of the Odyssey Online Critique Group. A testament to perseverance, if nothing else. He watches a very small patch of websites struggle into nethood, a link to which is also in our show notes. And now, Heavy Sulphur by Ari Marmel. Late Autumn 1916, the Western Front, amidst the roiling clouds of mustard gas, bilious and billowing. I could just make out the alchemancer positioned atop the hillock. He stood tall, arms spread, apparently untroubled by the fusillades filling the air with lead, the bursting ordnance raising geysers of shrapnel and mud across the field of no man's land. Ritual robes of rusty hue hung open over an officer's uniform of the German Empire. Unseen eyes glared through the lenses of a heavy gas mask, a hideous, insectile thing that looked to have taken the place of the man's head. The carbine strapped to one shoulder hung unused, for his right hand was occupied by a rune-carved staff of oak, from which the impossible banks of flesh-searing gas flowed. He directed them as an orchestra conductor, sending them against the wind, positioning them where he would. They rolled towards the trenches at the brave British defenders. Far behind the Alchemancer, I could see multiple squads of German soldiers preparing to rush any breach the mustard gas might open. I wasn't meant to have spotted the poison witch. None of us were. His occult defences were far too strong. That was why men such as I fought on the front lines. I could feel the faint wetness of the oil with which I'd anointed my own brow and eyelids, the charm that permitted me to overcome such protections. Smythe, I hissed between clenched teeth. Hamlin. Sir, yes, sir. Top of that rise, lads. I told them. No time to share the sight with you. Just shoot where I shoot. Understood, sir. Was a simple enough matter, that. So many of us were charging hither and yon across the battlefield, I was able to draw nice and close to the alchemancer before he realised I was approaching him directly, could see him where and for what he was. By then, there was little he could do. Even if the multiple rifle rounds I offered him from my Lee Enfield hadn't cut him down right nicely, the burst of automatic fire from Hamlin's Lewis gun would have left him in tatters. The mustard gas began dissipating almost instantly, broken apart by the encroaching winter winds, no longer bound by the will that had controlled it. 
the massed soldiers further along grew ever more exposed, as of course had been the point. Fall back, boys! My team was already gathering about me as we retreated, weapons trained on a much larger force. Sir, that was Waters, another of mine. Should we not? Relax, man. We've known they were coming since last night's raid. Listen. And there it was, right on cue, the dull roar and heavy chop of a Sopwith strutter. The biplane dropped from the low clouds, cutting a straight line over the enemy contingent. A bombing run on a battlefield objective was unusual, to be sure. But as I told the men, we'd known they were coming, and we'd decided to do for the whole lot. Artillery rained down on all sides, keeping the bastards from scattering as the aeroplane drew closer. Any moment now, and a bloody lot of Germans would be dispatched straight to... Arm, sir. Oh, hell. The dreary seasonal grey left little sun to speak of, and the pilot had released his weapon some distance across no man's land. Nonetheless, if one knew what to look for, the glimmer of the tumbling bombardment left no doubt that it was made out of something other than metal. Ceramic, most likely, and if so, it'd be a ceramic with intricate engravings over every inch of surface. Engravings that would shatter when the pottery did, breaking whatever bindings they represented. Bloody damn idiots in communications had gotten their wires good and crossed again. This was supposed to have been a conventional armament, not... Goetic payload, I shouted at them. Fall back to the trenches! I was scrabbling about my person for various protective talismans, even as I gave the order... Distance was probably still sufficient, surrounded by a whole array of Germans. The payload wouldn't likely turn its attention to my lads. But I wasn't about to risk their lives on likely. I located the amulet I wanted, raised it to my lips, and began muttering over it as I backstepped. Made by a devout Anglican, this one was. And it showed in the charm's ritual of activation. Latin. Bloody hate Latin. So there I was, reciting a ritual I only half understood, interspersed with psalms in a language I only half knew, in praise of a god I only half believed in. Even with the talisman's boost, none of the charms I'd mastered would hide us for long, not against anything as diabolically potent as a front-line battlefield summoning. Still, if the entity were distracted when it glanced our way, should it chance at all to do so, this was better than nothing. Still chanting, I turned and rushed to join my companions in a retreat that I wouldn't have admitted to anyone else was one step short of a panic dash. By the time we were once more snug in the trenches, safe if not even remotely half comfortable, I was near as cross as I'd been since that Serbian malcontent with a cut-rate grimoire had sicked a demon on Archduke Ferdinand and sparked this whole bloody war to start with. I'm sure none of the lads appreciated my stomping through the trench, spattering mud as I went. If the officer's dugout had had their door to slam, I well might have propriety be damned. He's waiting to speak to you, Corporal. The sentry barked with a salute before I could even demand to do so. That was a splash of cold water, but I wasn't about to let it stop me. 
I took the tight spiral stairs down at a rapid clip, barely seeing and only vaguely smelling the thick earth held at bay by thick wooden supports. The lower level of the dugout was one of the more comfortable chambers of this whole godforsaken network. Real tables, chairs, a chalk board, electric lights run off a small generator, a smattering of anti-clairvoyance talismans, and a radio that even worked on occasion. Major Grimes hunched over the table, reading some dispatch or other. The man had a tendency of muttering under his breath as he read, making his moustache bristle and twitch, much in the manner of a dying anemone. The officer commanding, of course, I recognised. The other two present, I did not. One was a woman in uniform, not unlike the major's or mine, her features somewhat blocky and shoulders broad, the sort who, with a couple of decades on her, would fit the term matronly right perfectly, and probably proudly. The other was a tall, slender fellow in the gaudy and ludicrous, pardon, the colourful, cap and coat, of a French officer. Stand easy, Corporal, Grimes ordered, scarcely looking up to acknowledge my salute. Sir, I began, only vaguely aware of the fury in my tone, and thus only vaguely able to manage it. I wish to register a formal complaint. When my squad were dispatched to meet the German offensive, you were far enough from the drop zone for a reasonable margin of safety, he interrupted. Still, sir, I should have been forewarned of any summoning to... This will wait, Corporal. I clicked jaw and heels together. Yes, sir. Finally, he stood straight, peering first at me, then at the others. Corporal, this is Captain Shelby Hunter Hughes of His Majesty's Royal Channeling Corps. Captain, Corporal Peyton Cleary, the chap I was telling you about. Royal Channeling Corps. A medium, then. Dead men do tell tales. When the right man, or, or woman, asks it of them. Captain, I offered, saluting again. Corporal. Her voice was deep, rich, without becoming masculine. This, Grimes continued, is Major Gislaine Poulard, seconded to us for this particular operation. Major, again, I saluted though I'm fairly certain I couldn't keep the question from my tone. Bonjour, Corporal. Either the man had suffered in a gas attack recently, or he smoked enough to shame a foundry. The Major has undergone all necessary checks and clearances, Grimes said, perhaps in answer to the question I hadn't voiced. You'll speak clearly in his presence. Understood, sir, though if I might ask. Grimes frowned. Lips pressed together so tightly they all but vanished beneath his moustache. Cleary, we have a code Echo Rose. It actually required a moment of me to recall what that meant. My God, the charges against. Are not zero, apparently. No, sir. Our foreign guest politely cleared his throat. I cast a questioning glance at Grimes, who grunted an affirmation. Our Meiji, I told Pular, now and again attempt to conjure entities with whom they can actually communicate. Call them what you will. Demons, spirits, 
Use whatever occult or religious framework you like. Goetic, hermetic, biblical. All of it is just even the cleverest of us trying to force ourselves to fathom entities that are unspeakably, incomprehensibly alien. We're not even certain how sentient they may be, what they are, how they think. Most can only be commanded in a general fashion, by virtue of the spells or sigils used to bind them. A select few, however, are intelligent enough, and not quite so alien, that a magus can, with some patience and sufficient nerve to risk madness, commune with them. The Frenchman nodded. They do the same, he said, in a heavily accented English. We preferably use such entities for espionage and intelligence, divination, far-seeing as they like. My turn to nod. We do as well. We also have safeguards woven into our conjurations, meant to alert our Magi, should one of the demons they've summoned, specifically one capable of direct communication, later be conjured by the enemy. Poulard stared at me, as though I'd abruptly become such a creature, and I could scarcely blame him. So far as we've ever been able to ascertain, the entities are infinite. We've no way of discerning one from another, no way to call forth a specific being. The odds against a double summoning of that sort especially when limited to specific varieties of entity, were beyond astronomical. Most of the personnel in our occult divisions felt that the safeguards I just mentioned were an utter waste of time and effort. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Until perhaps two minutes ago, I'd been one of them. Are you saying this has happened? He demanded incredulously. I received both communication and confirmation this morning, Grimes said. Even if the entity in question was never exposed directly to any sensitive information, 
he hardly needed to finish. Even if nothing else, it would know the name, the true name, of the Magus who had conjured it. The summoner, he continued, once he knew the severity was lost on none of us, was one of his majesty's grand magi. God, if the Germans or their allies got hold of that. Do they know what they've got? Captain Hunter Hughes asked. We don't believe so. The odds are they'd never think to ask. We cannot, however, rely on odds, especially given the circumstances. Corporal Cleary? Here it was, then. Why I'd been brought in on this. I thought about reminding the Major that my occult training was fairly limited, that even countering the battlefield wards of an enemy such as the earlier Alchemancer was pushing my limits. I decided against it. If he'd chosen me, it was because I was better suited than anyone else, or at least anyone else readily available, which amounted to the same thing. Your job is to banish or destroy the entity in question, he said, confirming my suspicion. Obviously, we can't tip the Germans off to its importance, so this will happen under cover of an assassination attempt against the Magus who conjured it. Said Magus is, in any case, one of our opposite number in the enemy trenches, not far from here. Well, that partly explained why it was the best bet, then... I nodded. Do we know who or where he... Captain Hunter Hughes has already penetrated the post-mortem defensive conditioning of several of the raiders killed in last night's attacks. Thanks to her interrogations, we have the Magus's name, his most probable location, and the German sentry passphrases currently in use. And there was the other reason he'd chosen me. I could pass four, and was fluent in German. Ancestry, linguistic skill, and some measure of occult mastery. No wonder he was making do with someone of my education. I looked first the Major's way. Uh, guess I'm to report to you, sir, if I make it back. And then the Captain's. And to you if I don't. Gallows humour at its finest. But neither one of them showed so much as a twitch of the lip. They could stand to be... A bit less dour about the whole endeavour. After all, it wasn't as though they were being dispatched on an almost certain suicide mission. We'll be staging an insertion offensive, Grimes continued, as though I hadn't spoken, including your own squad. Am I correct in understanding none of them speak German? Afraid so, sir. Pickens has some fluency, but never enough to pass. Right, just you, then, while your boys and everyone else keep the front line occupied. Uh, sir, if I may, I'm afraid I don't understand Major Poulard's place in all this. No disrespect, sir, I added to the man in question. None taken, I am wondering about this myself. The Major is a skilled, military-trained Magus, Grimes said. We have none of our own available nearby, not of sufficient proficiency anyway, so he's been seconded to us for the duration. This time, the look I directed Poulard's way was incredulous. He shrugged. Better to dress to blend in when ritual garb is unnecessary, away. Sensible, that, but I still was uncertain why we required a magus at all. 
When I returned my attentions to Major Grimes, though, I saw something, something in his eyes, something I'd rarely seen there before. Reluctance. Cleary, you understand there's a good chance you won't live to complete your objective. Or is it possibility, sir? Indeed, but this is too vital a task to fail. Even if you fall, we've, uh... This operation has been designated Heavy Sulphur, Corporal. Ah, that's how it is to be, then, sir. It is. Cleary, you understand. If it were up to me... No bother, sir. I hoped I sounded far more confident than I felt. Just another duty for King and Country. We'd best get started, then. Time is short enough, as it is. And now it felt shorter, to me, at least, than it ever had. We began with two separate bombardments of artillery, starting on the target zone and then spreading outward, clearing the path of barbed wire, landmines and, of course, German soldiers. Hundreds of us had then charged across the no-man's land between their trenches and ours, foundering and stumbling in the mud, making for the newly weakened position. Flames rose over this way, thrashing tentacles of a hue somehow fleshy pink and rotting grey at once. The air was soup-thick with cordite, brimstone and blood. My left ear still rang. My right had gotten well and truly sick of the whole affair and sat in sulky silence. And, of course, I was still in pain, my entire body chafing under my uniform thanks to the requirements of heavy sulphur. It had been well over twenty-four hours since Poulard had completed his part in things, a process which itself had taken almost a whole day. It would be far longer before I no longer felt the discomfort. Our forces would sweep in, turning left behind the enemy lines and surrounding what had long been a troublesome artillery battery, taking it out before German support could move up from the next row of trenches to secure the breach. Standard infiltration tactics, but in this case, also a diversion. All for me. The German uniform, scavenged from the dead, then mended and cleaned, would never have sufficed all on its own. Someone would have spotted me emerging from a British contingent. Nor would my charms of misdirection have worked, not if any of the German sentries had even the slightest training in penetrating such glamours. The both of them, together, however, in conjunction with the bedlam of the offensive, was enough to carry me unnoticed behind the forward position. Once there, it was a simple matter of diving into the nearest trench and sheltering with my fellow German soldiers. As we huddled, backs pressed to walls of packed earth, everything roaring and exploding all about us, I couldn't help but almost feel at home. The world these men occupied was scarcely different from my own. Oh, the precise design of trench might differ, the shapes and curves more extreme, the walkway of boards layered in the wrong pattern, the buttresses of different widths and materials, but in the end it was still just a trench, a man-made gash in the earth, boasting few comforts, save the occasional dugout, or other underground chamber. It boasted the same rats, growing ever more bold and contemptuous of we invaders, the same puddles of filthy, stagnant water that would rot boots and even feet if soldiers proved too incautious. 
the same stench of the latrines, enough to make a dead man wince. And, though the language differed, the same constant shouts and cries and orders and prayers. I wound up ensconced between a pair of soldiers, a young man, one Karl Driesen, who was serving in his first week on the front line, and an older, more hardened fellow called Neubauer. I never did get his Christian name. After I'd identified myself as a runner from the nearby Infanterie Regiment 49, we spent the next hours in idle chat while waiting for the bombardment to cease. I told them a bit about my fiancée in Stuttgart, only after confirming that neither was from there, of course, it turning out that Driesen was from Grodenz and Neubauer from Berlin. And while my entire life story was spun from a whole cloth, neither seemed to note anything amiss about it. I hoped they were equally oblivious of my discomfort as I leaned against the walls, my inability to find a comfortable posture, or at least, if they noticed, that they thought it the effect of a nervous disposition. The barrage finally ended as darkness neared, as I'd known it would. I excused myself to the latrine, both as cover for my departure and because I needed the facilities such as they were. The other soldiers I passed by on my way tossed the occasional salute or nodded greeting, but otherwise paid me no heed at all. And why should they? I looked as though I belonged. Frankly, and all things considered, this had been remarkably easy. If any operation that requires a frontal military assault by an entire battalion to serve as a diversion can be considered easy, I suppose. At which point, after I completed my necessary ablutions at the edge of a pit, at the end of a short side trench that could easily have stunk of English piss as German, I discovered that it wasn't to be quite so easy at all. A moment... Neubauer said in German from behind me. I felt a grip on my arm, turned to see a young soldier who was, had I to guess, probably on sanitary duty for this latrine. Neubauer stood behind him. Roll up your sleep, please. As God is my witness, I have no idea how he discovered me. My uniform coat had remained on and buttoned up at all times while we were together. Had the cuff slipped back at some point? Had I, at some moment, bent or hunched in a way as to allow the collar to gape? I've no idea. Clearly, he'd seen something, and a look at my bare arms would only confirm it. The fresh tattooing, Poulard's esoteric work, intricate patterns with hair-thin swirls, still inflamed and seeping, covered my entire body from wrists to neck to ankles. Thank heaven he'd caught me while the day shift stood their watch against the dusk assault, and the night hadn't yet been awakened. In the latrine, there were only the three of us. A quick blow with one hand to the young soldier's throat, ensuring he could not call out, while I drew a heavy trench knife with the other. Newbauer was good, experienced, but, though generally suspicious of me, had not recognised me as an immediate threat. I was able to lunge in under his guard, my knife taking him in the solar plexus. An ugly warmth drenched my hand. I saw movement, twisted desperately away as the other soldier, though rasping for breath, slashed at me with a bayonet. 
The fabric of my coat sleeve parted, but not the shirt beneath, nor, thank God, my skin. That would have proved a right mess, and no mistake. As the soldier was off his balance, watching for a thrust of my blooded knife, I instead put a boot in his gut, kicking him into the foul pit. He rose, gagging, struggling for a handhold, and I drove my blade down into his skull. Given his predicament, it seemed the only decent thing to do. I dumped Newbauer's body in there with him, and then kicked in a bit of mud to cover them. It would stand up to no true observation, but given the fading light and most men's tendency not to stare too long into a reeking latrine, I hoped they'd go unnoticed for a trice. Time enough. Time was definitely against me, though, even more now than it had been. I dashed out into the trench, choosing to make use of, rather than seek to conceal, my urgency. I approached the first soldier I spotted, tossing off a hasty salute. Obus Lieutenant Erdmann Vosler, I demanded of him, breathing hard. Where might I find him? I'm not, I, I believe he's meeting with the other officers, came the puzzled response. I nodded my thanks and set off, grateful to Captain Hunter Hughes that I had at least a working notion of the trench layout. As I approached the dugout that I believed to be the officers' command centre, however, I was intercepted by a pair of sentries. Again, I inquired after the lieutenant colonel and occultist. I have an urgent message for him only. These two, however, were not so easily convinced. From whom? the man on the left demanded. Bugger, I didn't have time for this. For him only, I repeated. I didn't ask to see it fool, just to know who it comes from. I've been instructed not to say even that much. Then we cannot allow you to pass. Proceed your demands. I drew myself up straight. If you would like to register a complaint with the Zauber Truppen, I informed him, referring to the Germans' own military occult division. I would be happy to stand and wait for this urgent communique while you do so. May I have your name, mine hair, so I may ensure my report is free of inaccuracies. Grumbling something about witches, they stood aside for me. Summoning all my willpower not to fidget with pages of the banished ritual I carried in my coat, I slipped into the officer's dugout. It lacked the chairs to be found in Major Grimes's office, but the table and boards were similar indeed. Of the four officers gathered around that table, I could not be sure which was the Magus Vossler. There was, however, no doubt whatsoever as to the entity. It sat at the head of the table, floating, bobbing as if on a gentle sea. I saw angry flesh, such as might result from abrading a hound bald with sandpaper. Limbs that I hesitate to call legs hung limp and loose, lightly coiling where they reached the floor. Smaller limbs, jointed far too many times, and also backwards, again like a dog's, wobbled as they stretched out over the table. Its head, God, I can best describe it as a hound's or wolf's snout. Just the snout, no eyes or forehead, splitting open to resemble a blossoming flower. 
Yes, one of the officers barked as they all looked irritably up at me. What is it, you... The thing howled, or maybe hissed. Steam through a trumpet, perhaps. It pointed at me with one arm, which unfolded joint after joint, ever narrower, impossibly long, until it aimed a single gnarled digit at me. And within that unholy sound, a smattering of syllables came together to make a horrid sense. English man! I dove aside, hand darting for the ritual, but I wasn't remotely fast enough. No man could have been. I heard the crack of pistols, felt agony blossom across my body. The wounds were tiny pits of fire, but the night had gone so very cold. Call for a channeler, I heard one of them say. We'll find out why he's come, what the English thought to achieve. The voice, indeed all the sounds, faded away. All sounds but one, that is. A faint chorus in my ears, a growing unhallowed chant. I do not know if you can hear me, Captain Hunter Hughes. My final thoughts may amount to nothing. This final report shouted uselessly into the void, but I can feel the pain of my injuries turning into something else. The agony falling away even as it grows worse, as though becoming distant. The ritual of binding loosens. The lines of the great sigil tattooed across my flesh, now broken by the bullets that shredded my skin. Heavy sulphur. If a man should fail, what better way to wreak havoc amongst the enemy? How better to kill a demon than with a greater demon. I feel it rising within, tearing free, preparing to rid itself of the prison of blood and bone that is Peyton Cleary. I feel it coming, and I am content for king and country. Oh boy! If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you know that you can leave your comments on our Triple F website, Facebook page, or on Twitter. We love hearing from our listeners, and we want to know your thoughts on our content. As always, please leave us a review on iTunes or other podcatchers so that we can build our listenership and keep the stories flowing. Please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License, which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but don't change it and don't sell it. And be sure to give credit where that credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors, and violators will find themselves alone in no man's land. And that, dear listeners, brings us to the end of this final podcast of 2016. As I'm sure you will all agree, 2016 has been a very interesting year. May 2017 be slightly less chaotic for those of us who wish it to be so. It's been my pleasure to sit in front of a microphone talking to you for this year, and I look forward to the next one. My thanks, as always, go to Gary Dowell, editor of the Triple F, and Mark Zanfardino, our fantastic audio engineer.
we all three of us, together with those at the District of Wonders, wish you a very happy new year. See you on the flip side. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.